First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Father, you commanded us to pray for all who are in authority over us. We think of our own state senate that did not have enough steel to protect human life in the last 10 days. Thank you that there'll be another opportunity for them to stand for what is right. And we pray especially for those who say they are Christians who ran on a plural life platform but voted against protecting little babies. We think of our own president and vice president and the evil that they are committed to, killing babies right up until the day before they're born, heralding perversion, what you call evil, helping to destroy little children's lives. Father, we would despair if we did not know that you were in control. But we thank you that someday you will bring all things in line with your perfect will. We pray for our president and vice president that they might find forgiveness, that they would repent and believe. For you said, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. His old life has passed away and everything's become new. That we are given a new capacity, you promised to think our thoughts after your thoughts the mind of Christ. And so this morning we pray that that mind, that new ability you've given us might be refreshed and renewed as we study your word. Come and help me to rightly divide your truth. Come and fill me and anoint me and use me. That by the spirit we might lift up the Lord Jesus. Can we ask it in his name, amen. I wanna invite you this morning to take your Bibles please and turn to 2 Timothy chapter four. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a simple question. What is the single most important thing that's ever happened to you in your whole life? If you are a true believer without stammer or stutter, without any pause, you will say the day I became a believer because that changed your eternal destiny. Well, if that's true, what's the most significant thing that you could share with another person? Obviously, how they could come to know Christ then why is it that so many Christians would rather do just about anything than to share the gospel? I'll do anything. I'll pass out bulletins. I'll open doors. I'll lick envelopes. I'll serve in the nursery. I'll even clean the bathrooms. Please don't ask me to witness. I suppose there are several reasons why Christians have made such conclusions. First, we're afraid of the unpredictable. We're afraid that people will put us down. Well, some people will. Some people will put you down. That's what the message does sometimes. Some are afraid that they might be asked a question that they don't know the answer. That's okay. That will just make you sharper. And all you have to do is say, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll find out. Some people think, well, you know, I hear of all these people who have these glowing testimonies of folks they've introduced to Christ, and I mustn't have the gift. You may not have that gift to evangelize. That's one of 20 gifts in the New Testament called the gift of evangelism. 
But we all share that responsibility just as we share the gift of Uh, the responsibility of the gift of mercy, or we share the responsibility of the gift of serving, or we share the responsibility of the gift of teaching. Some are gifted in those four areas, but we all share the responsibility. But I suppose the worst reason that someone would not share their faith is, I just don't care. They have a cold, unresponsive heart. And they get excited about all kinds of things, but not sharing the gospel. And yet, if you've been saved, God has entrusted to you a commission. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not committing their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. When Paul uses that plural pronoun, us, he's including himself and all the Christians in Corinth, and by application, all of us. God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He continues as though God were treating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We stand in the place of the Lord God, beseeching on his behalf how people can be made right, how they can be reconciled to God. That's a tremendous responsibility, and indeed, it's an infinite privilege. And one of these days, God is going to say, enough, My church has done all they're going to do, and we will be caught up into the air, and he will then use 144,000 Jewish missionaries and evangelists who will be converted after the rapture, and they will preach the gospel to the whole world. That's what Jesus was referring to when we studied recently in the Olivet Discourse that we'll be coming back to, Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. It will be fulfilled, the Great Commission. And of course, contextually, he tells us that this will happen during the time of the Great Tribulation period. And so John can see the fruit of those evangelists, all 144,000. And he said, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the great commission will indeed be fulfilled. It doesn't change the fact that we are to be agents of God to help fulfill it. I love what Paul said and commanded in the prayer request he asked of the church in Colossae. He said, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at, all, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Paul prayed for open doors of opportunity to share the Lord Jesus, and that when that door came open, that he might make the gospel clear. And if you want to pray for me for something, people say, well, what can I pray for you for, Pastor? You can pray for me that God will give me more open doors, and that when the opportunity comes, I might make it clear. And by the way, if that was Paul's need, the great theologian who gave us so many New Testament books, he needed to make it clear, what must your need, what must my need be? But you know what I have found? That when I pray for opportunities, God just has a way of bringing people into my path who are prepared. 
Sometimes you are planting a seed for the first time. Other people are so ripe, they're ready to be harvested and brought into the kingdom. Listen, God works at both ends of the spectrum. He works in the heart of the unbeliever, and he works in the heart of the believer that loves the Lord Jesus. And next Sunday, of course, we have a great opportunity. It's Friend Day, and with all my heart, and those in Graniteville, those in Grays, those here, those who are live streaming in Beaufort County, invite people to Friend Day. Invite someone. I invited a half a dozen or more people this past week, and I hope to invite three times that in the week that is in front of us. And so there's invitational cards as you leave. Now, if you're here for the first time, my modus operandi is typically to take a book of the Bible and go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But we're in a series, I'm still preaching expositionally, but the series I've entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. And we have learned that at the end of the age, things will not get better, things will get worse. Our text refers to difficult times, perilous times, some English Bibles say. And so we want to be effective in these perilous times. By the way, chapter 4 pictures the very last words Paul will ever pen. He's at the end of his life. Tradition says that he's beheaded on the Ostian Way there in Rome. And he's writing to Timothy, his son, his true child in the faith. And he writes in a way in which he has zero regrets. But he wants to pass the baton on to this young pastor whom he had discipled. Paul knows that all that is before him is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give not just to Paul, but to every believer who loves and longs for his appearing. Because as you love and long for the appearing of Christ, it changes your life today, and it will certainly make you passionate, whatever the circumstances are, to share the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 1, follow along. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate to themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." Now, if you know chapter 3, it opens up with the truth that we are, that he's describing the characteristics of the last days. And he refers to the last days as difficult or perilous times. It's a picture of a very harsh, savage, difficult time in which to live. In fact, that word translated difficult in chapter 3 is used only in one other place in the New Testament of the Gadarene demoniacs, who were wicked men controlled by multiple demons. But indeed, it will be difficult to walk at the end of time, and he gave us a list of reasons in 2 Timothy 3, because indeed it will be more difficult to keep marriages together, because there will be much playing against marriages, more pressure. Indeed, it will be more difficult because children will be rebellious against their parents. That's one of the marks of the last days. 
It will be different, difficult because men will be without natural love. That he's describing homosexual, transgender, perverted behavior without natural love. And he reminds us in chapter 3 that much of the difficulty that he records is all done in the name of religion. And so he says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, certainly the instruction and the warning of the last days applies not just to the end of time, but to Timothy's day. Because he can command him, avoid such men as these, meaning such people just described were very much alive and active. Sometimes people ask me, do you believe we're in the last days? And my answer is, it all depends. It all depends on what you mean by the last days. See, it may seem natural to us to think of the last days as some future time frame right before Jesus comes back. But the Bible will not allow you to restrict the term to that kind of definition. As you read the New Testament, it becomes very apparent that we are living in a new age, that the old age, the old covenant, the old deal has passed away, and a new covenant, a new age has dawned, and it's referred to as the last days. That's why Peter on the day of Pentecost stands up after a miracle where the Spirit is given, where externally it's seen, and that people speak real languages that they did not previously know. He said, but this, what they just witnessed, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind. So Peter believed that this was going to be fulfilled in the last days, and they just saw it. Likewise, the writer of the Hebrews opens his epistle saying, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So clearly, the writer of the Hebrews believed that he was in the last days. But of course, as you read through the New Testament, one of the reasons, indeed, this phrase, the last days is used is because the return of Jesus is imminent. He could come at any moment. But we could definitely speak of what some call the last of the last days. Because in 2 Timothy 3, verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse 13, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial so don't let those distract you. He speaks of this time frame where people will be deceived and being deceived and where times will go from bad to worse. So Paul looks down the corridors of time and that's why he uses a future tense when things will get much worse. And so the things that Paul described in Timothy's day are accelerating with a fury. He predicted that there would be a breakdown in natural love, that there would be a culture, a world characterized by unthankfulness, by immorality, by disobedience to parents, by sin, by false professions, by heretical teachings. And it seems like with every decade, things that were startling and bizarre to us 12 months ago are now even more bizarre and startling. And so we have a world that feeds on a diet of filth. The media is covered over in sensuality. The internet that started as an interesting and educational tool shortly turned into so much garbage, so much filth. 
And the things that once bothered Americans, and not just Americans, across the world, people now entertain themselves with. The law was once, well, it was once respected in this nation. But lawlessness is growing. Violence, we used to be able to, you know, the only time we locked our doors as children, we didn't even lock them at night. The only time my parents locked our doors is when we went on vacation. Everything has changed. Marriage vows are no longer considered as sacred. Children, they're being abused. When I think of these politicians who are advocating that children should have the right to have mastectomies or to be castrated as young men, this is evil beyond evil. These people are guilty of child abuse. And it once would have been considered child abuse, but not any longer. And so how do we walk with God in times like this? How do we make a difference in such an apostate world? Well, he's going to help us to understand. And it's important that all of us listen, because what we are corporately is the sum total of what we are individually. And so God wants these things to be true, not just of Timothy, but Timothy is to be a model to the congregation that he leads. He wants them to be true of us. Notice how he begins with this charge in verse 1. I solemnly charge you. You might want to circle the word charge. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. It's a solemn charge given to every pastor, and secondarily, of course, to every believer. And I say it's a serious moment, as Paul writes this last letter here at the end of his life, and he reminds Timothy that the charge he has given is not being given in his own name or even by his own apostolic authority, but he underscores in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That's serious. And I suppose... Perhaps one of the strongest incentives for living is that we want to please the Lord and not simply men. Because Jesus is coming back and he will judge the just in heaven and reward them accordingly and he will judge the lost. All will appear before the one who will judge the living and the dead. And I hope you see today that while you may not be called to be a pastor like Timothy, We're all called to be preachers, to preach the gospel. In fact, in a non-technical sense, in Romans 10, 14, the Bible applies it to every believer. Every believer is called a preacher. Now, I know in the South especially, sometimes people say, hey, preacher. But understand, we could say that in the first century of any believer. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call upon him who they have not heard, and how will they hear without a preacher? He's talking about the obedient Christian who will share the gospel in that context. And so we need to carefully look at this charge that he has given. There are three aspects to the charge. First, the charge's mandate. Precisely what is this charge that Paul is commissioning Timothy with and us? Second, I want us to think this morning about the charge's motivation. That is, why is it? this charge should be carried out. What is this charge based on? What's its motivation? 
And third, I want us to ponder a little bit about the charge's manner. How is it that this charge is to be carried out? So let's begin with the charge's mandate. The essence of the charge is summed up in the very first three words of verse 2. I charge you. In fact, let me read the command without the, um, without the intervening words. I solemnly charge you, dot, 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 preach the word. Now, please notice that the message that Timothy is to preach is called the word. And that's a concept that's mentioned over and over again in Paul's epistles. He uses the word sound doctrine, even in this immediate context, in verse 3 to describe the word. In verse 4, he describes the word, notice, as the truth. You should circle that as well. In verse 7, he describes the word as the faith, not faith, but the faith, meaning that body of truth that the apostles gave us that we call the Bible. And so what does the faith consist of? It includes all of the Old Testament that is God-breathed, but it also includes um, not just what Timothy learned from childhood, but that all God would give through his apostles and those whom they designated to help write the New Testament. So contrary to the popular practice of our day that a preacher is supposed to be original, we are simply to preach the word. Paul wants him to understand that pastors and church members are not simply to hear the word. They're not simply to believe the word. They're not simply to obey the word. Nor are they simply to guard the word as he commands them. Nor are they simply to suffer for the word as he says. Nor are they simply to continue in the word as he taught and commanded Timothy to do in the earlier chapters. No, you're not simply to guard the word, suffer for the word, continue in the word. You're to preach the word. You're to speak the word. You're to share the truth verbally. Preach the word. Why? Because it's good news, and good news is worth sharing. But what's so pitiful in our day is that in American evangelicalism, more and more, the Bible has taken a back seat. And we've become like liberal Protestants. Their motivation is different for not preaching the Bible. For the most part, they don't believe it. But in evangelicalism, they're not preaching the Bible because they don't want to act offensive on Sunday morning, and they need to be, quote-unquote, seeker-sensitive. But the word preach here is an important New Testament word. It's the word keruso, and it means to preach like a herald. A herald represented a king. Without apology, he didn't go as an ambassador to negotiate a message. He went and he announced what needed to be heard and what needed to be heeded. And if the king's message needed to be heeded, the message of the king of kings and lord of lords all the more needs to be heeded. And so having given the charge, he now goes on to give us four marks for the charge. And again, you should take notes this morning. There were some people in the last service who were just sitting like this, never taking a note, and I think someday you're going to stand before Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead, and I don't want you to be deficient on that day. Go home, think about these things, turn them into prayer requests. Ask God to make them true in your life and in mine. First, we're to preach the word urgently. We're to preach the word urgently. Four marks, it's to characterize Timothy's preaching and your preaching. We're to preach the word urgently. Again, in verse two, 
preach the word, be ready. Circle that word ready. Be ready in season and out of season. Now, the verb be ready, I suppose, cannot be captured by a single English word. It means to, be, to stand by so as to be ready. The verb was used in the first century in a military context of a Roman soldier who was ready at any moment to step into battle. It speaks of alertness. It speaks of urgency. The RSV renders it, preach the word, be urgent in season and out of season. Uh, The Phillips paraphrases it, preach the word, never lose your sense of urgency. You cannot preach the Bible in a listless, lackadaisical kind of way. There needs to be an urgency in your heart. You need to be gripped that the message that you are sharing with individual concerns life and death and eternal issues. It concerns the sinner's plight that if he is not rescued through the blood of Christ, through faith in Jesus, that he will spend an eternity under the retribution of God Almighty. And it concerns many present matters in terms of how we as Christ's ambassadors are to represent him. And sadly, what has happened so much in our day is that people have gone through the text, but the text has never gone through them. And they're not really gripped with it. And there's not a sense of fire and urgency in their preaching. I don't care if it's an Awana class or sixth grade boys or an ABF or someone standing behind a pulpit. There should be a fire, an urgency in our bones. Jeremiah said, then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was wary of holding it back, and I could not. In staff meeting a few years ago, we meet on Tuesday morning, all the pastors and directors And we studied together the Reformed pastor. It's a classic read. It was done by Richard Baxter in 1656. And he said this, whatever you do, let the people see that you are of good earnest. You cannot break men's hearts by jesting with them or telling them a smooth tale or patching up a gaudy oration. Men will not cast away their darest pleasures upon a drowsy request of one that seems not to mean as he speaks or to care much whether his request be granted. That's why it's essentially important for Paul to encourage Timothy to be a spirit-filled pastor because you cannot manufacture this passion. And I've seen a lot of manufactured passion by a pastor who simply shouts, and he thinks if he shouts a little bit louder, that that's going to bring the point home. But unless the Spirit of God anoints the words, it falls on deaf ears. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Timothy is to be diligent. He is to be alert with a sense of urgency as God opens doors in season and out of season. When you feel like it, And when you don't feel like it, when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. The week before last, I had a 70-hour week, and I woke up like most pastors do on Monday with a preacher's hangover, as we call him. Call my son-in-law. He says, you know, Mondays are like really tough. He's in his 30s. I said, it's no different if you're in your 30s or 60s. When you're under the Spirit of God for hours, 
And all week long, you're moving, and God's working in your heart and mind towards a message. You're just like wiped out the next day. And I met this individual, and I certainly didn't feel like speaking with him. But I needed to be ready in season and out of season, and I'm so glad I did because he was so open to the truth of the gospel. Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote in the 11th chapter, he who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. The Living Bible paraphrases it this way. If you wait for perfect conditions, you will never get anything done. Verse 2 here in the NAS simply reads, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. The CJB, the complete Jewish Bible, renders it, proclaim the word. Be on hand with it, whether the time seems right or not. The net translation of the Bible says, preach the message. Be ready, whether it's convenient or not. Now, this by no means indicates that we're to be brash or insensitive or harsh, where we invade someone's privacy when we're not welcome. Sometimes in the name of evangelism, I've seen people kick doors down. But understand the favorable or unfavorable, this in-season or out-of-season, the convenient or inconvenient sign, a time that he is describing is in relation not to the hearer but to the speaker, that we, are need, that we are to be available to the living God for whatever he wants us to do. And God may open a door when you don't feel like preaching or sharing the truth, but we are to be faithful. This is not some warrant for being rude or brash, but neither is it a warrant to be lazy or self-centered or just consumed with our own little world where we don't talk about the Lord Jesus. You say, that's what we pay you to do. I'm glad that God allows me to spend the best hours of my week in the preaching and teaching of the gospel, but I cannot win souls for you. I'll work with you, but I cannot take your place and the avenues in which the Lord will put you. So preach urgently. Secondly, we are to preach the word revealingly. We are to preach the word revealingly. Preach the word be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Now, from God's point of view, he considers our preaching is relevant if it has three characteristics to it, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. The first word is reprove. It's a Greek word that describes behavior that is out of sync, out of line. It violates the will and the standard of God. It has the idea of both convincing and convicting the person with the truth of Scripture. The second word's a little bit different. It's a little stronger. It's rendered here, rebuke, where you lay blame on the person. As the Word of God is preached, it should be clear that if a person is guilty, they know they're guilty. They know they are erring. We don't hold back. We are to be faithful to what God says in spite of what people may think, whether it applies to the believer or to the unbeliever. But then he adds a third word, exhort. There's a need for exhortation because those who have been reproved, those who have been rebuked also need some encouragement. People need to know how both their sin can be forgiven and their spiritual lives can be strengthened 
To, to quote an old rule that we often state as pastors, our role is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. And so you're going to come into all kinds of settings. Dealing with a family with a 12-year-old girl and seems to be troubled and the grandparents are burdened and care and love this child deeply. Only to find out that her mom is a lesbian and now is living with a man who has trans changed his gender into a woman. What evil. You say, how does a kid like that stand a chance? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I tried to encourage them. God is big in spite of circumstances, even, yes, for this 12-year-old girl. And there are principles these principles of reproving, rebuking, exhorting, it needs to be applied not just in the pulpit, but if you're a dad and you're shepherding your family and you're teaching your children the truth of Scripture. It might be in an ABF that you're leading or sixth grade class of Awana boys or girls. Preach it revealingly. Third, we're to preach the word patiently. We're to preach it patiently. Let's read further into the text. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instructions. So while we're to preach the word with a sense of urgency, we're to preach it with a, a sense of patience. The herald of God, the preacher of God must be patient. In other words, we never resort to human pressure, human manipulation to try to force or coerce people into making a decision. We are to be patient. There's a sense of urgency. There should be a fire in your bones, but it is to be done patiently. Sometimes people will meet me out in the hall and they say, you must be discouraged. I said, why? No one came down front. I said, that's not how I measure success. Success is not measured by how many people come down front to join the church or to confess Jesus or to be obedient in baptism. Success is being faithful to God to preach the word. And in its season, Psalm 1 says, fruit will be born. And there are seasons where it just seems like we're having this series of all these decisions, and there's other times where you're just faithfully teaching and planning the word. I had a man who called me from Maine, and they were broadcasting, Rick, we hadn't done it in ages. We don't usually do it on the radio and on the station up there. Would you like to know God as your friend? And so he downloads it. And he said, I listen to it every day going to work. He was Roman Catholic. It was contrary to Catholic doctrine. And he said, I would be arguing with you on the radio. And I, long story short, he gave his life to Jesus. And he wrote me to tell me about it. Look, sometimes when you preach the word, you preach it patiently. God is in the process. He's sowing a seed. Other people like the church at Thessalonica, on the first time the gospels heard, because they were so prepared, so ready, people responded and called upon Jesus in faith. So fruit is often seasonal, and it comes in series. Just be faithful. D on your outline, we must preach the word doctrinally. Not only must we be urgent, and revealing, and patient, we are to be doctrinally sound. Let me read now all of verse 2. Preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So he's giving the proper balance that needs to be heated in our day. Not only are we to preach the word, but we are to teach the word. And the two are not separated in the New Testament. A pastor is not simply to tell stories that are interesting and give a lot of illustrations, though they have their place, because Jesus obviously used illustrations. But they are to explain the meaning of the text. They are to teach doctrine. Uh, the King James renders it teaching. That's what the word doctrine means. It means to teach. And doctrine is not dry and dusty. Why? Because doctrine represents who God is. When you're learning biblical doctrine, you're learning about who God is. I was telling a gentleman just recently, I said, when you understand God's commitment to Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11, you're learning about a promise-keeping God. He finishes chapter 8, then nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And someone might say, wait a minute, you said you loved Israel with an everlasting love, it seems like you forsook them. And so in chapter 9, he elected them. In chapter 10, he explains why they're in unbelief. In chapter 11, how he's going to restore them. Why? Because he keeps his promises. So when you understand biblical truth, you're understanding what God is like. And unfortunately, we live in a day where there's a lot of shouting and emotionalism and self-help kind of psychology. There was a seminary called Grace Seminary that was once a great seminary. I have some of the books from some of the leaders in the 40s and 50s, and they brought in this guy who turned the seminary into psychobabble, and now it's virtually dead today. Because we're not to preach psychology. We're to preach the Word of God. And that's why it's essential when God looks at the qualifications of an elder, among other things, he must be apt, he must be able to teach. And so pastors are to teach the word as they preach the word. And that's exactly what Paul did. Remember when he gathered the elders in Ephesus or from Ephesus on that beach at Miletus, he said that he faithfully declared anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly and from house to house. And then he adds, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So that is the mandate that Paul is giving to Timothy. People tell me, well, doctrine divides. Yes, it does. It divides truth from error. It divides the sheep from the goats. I went to a conference in Columbia, South Carolina, 20 years ago. It was a Promise Keepers conference, and these brothers just kept begging me to go and begging me to go, and I didn't really want to go because I wasn't excited about it. So I finally went, and the good coach, who was nothing more but an emblazed, wild, charismatic, stands up and he says, doctrine divides, so I'm not here to preach doctrine. Nothing could be more ignorant than what he said. We are to teach doctrine. The word simply means teaching. And certainly God used that movement, but it died for a reason because it erred from the major mandates that God had given to us in Scripture. And so preach the word urgently, revealingly, patiently, and doctrinally. But in addition to the charge's mandate, secondly, I want you to think with me about the charge's motivation. 
Paul is not content to give Timothy the essence of the charge. He now goes on to give the basis for the charge. And so having given him the responsibility to preach the word in verses 1 and 2, now in verses 3 and 4, he gives the reason to preach the word. And I want you to notice there are three arguments from the contemporary scene in which Timothy finds himself that this charge needs to be grounded. And it's especially true as you move into the last of the last days. Because as Paul said to Timothy, times would go from bad to worse. Preach the word first because men will not want to hear the truth. Preach the word because men will not want to hear the truth. So verse 2 begins, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Notice the little three-letter word for. It's the Greek word gar, transliterated G-A-R. It means because. In other words, Paul is proceeding now to give us the reason, the basis on which this charge to preach is founded. He's predicting a time will come when they will need to hear healthy or sound doctrine, and folks won't want to hear it. Now, of course, he's speaking prophetically. At the time that he wrote this, he says the time will come. He's looking into the future. But ladies and gentlemen, let me announce to you, the time has arrived. We are living in a day where Paul says that men and women and boys and girls will be tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Now, certainly it appears from what he has written earlier that this would have application in Timothy's day. But Paul in 3.13 is anticipating the end of the age where this would grow and deepen and broaden. And that's why he uses, of course, this future tense. In 1 Timothy 4.1, again, he describes the latter days when men would depart from the faith. And really one of the greatest needs in our day is for men to teach sound doctrine. 45 times in the New Testament, God commands that sound doctrine be taught. And for God to say it that many times, this is not secondary, this is central to what a church is to be about. And again, people say, well, I don't focus on doctrine because it divides. Yes, truth from error, sound teaching from erroneous teaching. It takes those who are misinformed and ignorant, and as their mind is renewed with truth, it equips them to stand for Christ and to live the kind of life that that doctrine is given. Now, think about it. You should never apologize for doctrine, and again, the word simply means teaching. We have books like The Teaching of Sigmund Freud. That's just another way of saying Freud's doctrine. Or there's a book we have, The Thought of Charles Darwin. That's another way of simply saying Darwin's doctrine. And as Christians, we should never apologize for the God who created Darwin and Freud, who wrote a book that will long outlive any of the books that man has written. God wants us to be mature in our thinking. He wants us to be stable in our behavior. And it's impossible apart from sound doctrine. Now, think your way through this. Some people have not thought it through. They're misinformed. They're agnosis. They are ignorant that they have a basis of authority for everything they believe and embrace. Even the atheist, he has a basis for believing what he believes. He says there is no God. 
And the basis for his belief that he'll often come back to you with is you cannot prove that God exists. Well, we don't have to prove that God exists because it's self-evident, the New Testament teaches. It's self-evident through creation for God's invisible attributes, his divine power and eternal nature are clearly seen through what he has made. And it's evident through conscience. Man's conscience within reflects the law of God, Romans 2.15, that was written in his heart. And that's why the Bible never really defends the existence of God. People think, well, I need to learn the ontological proof for the existence of God or the teleological proof for the existence of God. No, God devotes one half of one verse to atheism. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The agnostic has a belief system. He says it's impossible to know whether God exists. He too goes against the clear revealed light that God has given. And so every person has some basis for believing what they believe. Maybe their parents taught them this way. And again, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And I think of this 12-year-old girl who no doubt is being hammered, I know she is, with evil. And she's being taught the wrong things. And we need to teach her the right things. And again, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. People say, well, I'm sincere in my belief. You can be and you can be sincerely wrong. The question you must ask is, is my belief based on the word of God? Because everyone has a theology. The atheist has a theology. He says there is no God. The agnostic has a theology. He says you can't know if there's a God. The liberal has a theology. If it's based on something other than scripture, then it is not sound. And interesting, the word sound is a medical term in the first century. You could render it healthy doctrine. And God knows what germs are to the physical body, bad doctrine is to the spiritual body. And so many pastors today, they lick their finger, they hold it up to the wind, and they go with the prevailing winds when they are supposed to be preaching healthy doctrine. And if you do so, you're considered old-fashioned, you're considered antiquated, but those pastors, even some evangelicals who meet the Lord Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ are gonna have incredibly deep regrets. Timothy, they may not like it, but it's the kind of spiritual food that is essential to their health. I have a good friend. I told you about him once before. I'll never forget what he told me there in Dallas. He said, as a general rule, if it tastes good, spit it out. Well, listen, I may teach some things that don't taste good to you. Sometimes I have to serve some spiritual broccoli and cauliflower. But we need to embrace it because it's good for us. God is truth. The scripture says God cannot lie. Preach the word, Timothy. Men need to have sound doctrine. Preach the word, secondly, because men will choose bad leaders. Men will choose bad leaders. Preach it because men will not want to hear the truth, but preach the word because men will choose bad leaders. He underscores that truth here in verse 3. Follow along. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. 
Now, it's interesting, the lexicons underscore, lexicon is like a, uh, a dictionary as it applies to a particular language that you're studying, and most pastors have at least Greek and Hebrew lexicons not typically Aramaic because it's so small, the portion of Scripture there, but uh, the word tickled in the lexicon, itching in some translations, is a figure of speech that refers to interesting, spicy bits of information. Do you know that there are people who go to church every week who go to church because they want to have their ears tickled? And when you say what they want to hear, especially in a way in which they like hearing it, They love you as a preacher. And by the way, I failed to mention that the word sound also could be rendered healthy. We get our word hygiene directly from the Greek word. And so some people don't want good spiritual hygiene. They just want to come to church to be made to feel good. And there's a whole movement in America today. It's the church growth movement. And as a pastor, I get more mail than I care to open. And from some organizations, I don't even bother to open it. I just throw it directly into the basket because they're trying to sell me something of what I should do in order to make the church grow. And then, of course, beyond that, you have people who soften sin, who redefine sin. And so you have even evangelical pastors who say it's okay to drink. It's not okay to drink. That is ignorance of the highest point. Go to my website, searchthescriptures.org. Some of the greatest biblical scholars in the history of the last 200 years have taken the same position I have. Now, it's ignorance to say that it wasn't real wine, but God forbids strong drink. And strong drink was intoxicating, not whiskey and rum and the distilled liquors that come a thousand years later, but wine that was fermented and unmixed with water. And so the Didash, the Talmud, Midrash commentaries typically argue that you mixed it in a five to one ratio. Do you think for a hundred years, nearly a hundred years, the seminary I went to, they said that the, the, the student body could not drink, much less any of their professors. Do you think they were just ignorant? I think Dr. Chafer and John Walvoord and Dwight Pentecost and Howard Hendricks, you think that these are all just ignorant men? They were not ignorant at all. It's the church today that's ignorant. Moody Bible Institute for over 100 years said, no, you can't drink. But now you can drink, smoke, and gamble in moderation. Do you think they were just ignorant that they were just, oh, you know, prohibition, we need to follow the culture? No, they were following the Holy Scripture. And so we live in a day where sin is de-emphasized and pastors will get up and they'll share about movies that they have seen, R-rated, centrally oriented movies that Jesus Christ would never watch with them. But they'll watch. And then you got guys like a Creflo Dollar with his prosperity theology. Listen to these words. Creflo said, Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promises of financial prosperity. That is heresy beyond heresy. No wonder he had that person in his church last week. A person who's advocating the murder of little babies in the womb. A person who, like the president and vice president, is heralding perversion as a way of life to be protected. Because these are false teachers. Joe Osteen. He attempts to de-emphasize sin, and so when he's being interviewed on a morning show, 
He, he's asked why he doesn't speak about hard things and sinful things. And he said, and I quote, there's enough pushing people down in life already. When they come to my church or our meetings, I want them to be lifted up. I want them to know that God's good, that they can move forward, that they can break an addiction, that they can become who God created them to be. And then, speaking of sound doctrine, to use his own words, he uses the word doctrine, and he says, no, we need to veer away from teaching doctrinal differences. And he says, and I quote, these days people want to know if I come to church, how it's going to help me to live my life. And so he's being interviewed on Oprah Winfrey, and of course she has these special broadcast specials with Harry and Megan, and not long ago with Joel, and she asked him directly, are there many paths to get to the one God? To which Joel responds, I believe, Oprah, that Jesus is the way to the one God, but I believe there are many paths to Jesus. That's heretical. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Paul will say there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's one mediator. You can't go through Buddha or Vishnu or you have to come through Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here's what the apostle John said. In his second letter, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. The apostle John, as you read his second letter, would say, Creflo and Joel don't know the Lord. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this doctrine... Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. The apostle Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, you bear this beautifully. You should have thrown the guy out. But you bear it beautifully. You just take it all in. They lacked spiritual discernment. And so they had no problem allowing people to come into the Corinthian church who preached another Jesus, which is no Jesus at all. And this is why it is absolutely essential that a pastor who stands in the pulpit, because you cannot say, well, he's a preacher, but he's not a teacher. No, if he's a pastor, he preaches and teaches the Word of God. And if he gets up there with these little 15, 20-minute vignettes, he's not going to ground the people of God. And if they're left under that kind of preaching long enough, that church will go liberal. So we've got two Baptist churches in town, one that historically was a great church. They used to send missionaries overseas, and a church they now planted out of there, and they both deny biblical infallibility. We have two Presbyterian churches in town. There used to be this old German guy who used to write in the newspaper when I first came here in the early 90s, and he'd write about all these different churches, and these two churches were once great churches, but now they do gay marriages. 
See, this is the sick world we live in, and people cannot discern truth from error, what's right from what's wrong, because they're not being grounded in sound doctrine, and you leave a church there long enough, and they just become nominal Christians, and they'll bring in before long a pastor who doesn't even know the Lord. He'll use the language of historic Christianity, but they won't be able to discern. Turn back a few pages to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. We looked at this text back in June at the start of this series, but I want to dust off your minds with its truth. 1 Timothy 4, 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So Paul begins chapter 4 with an immediate and stark contrast, but He's doing the same thing that he does in our passage this morning. He moves from sound doctrine to the doctrines of demons. And he says this will be prevalent in the latter times. Now, unlike the term last days that began on the day of Pentecost, the latter days is a New Testament term that refers to that final time frame before Jesus refers, comes back, what we would call the last of the last days. And he's warning specifically, while indeed there was apostasy in Timothy's day, that as we move into the very end of the age, that this is going to multiply and deepen. In latter times, men will fall away from the faith. And it's raging in our day. It was true in the first century, but it is unbelievable here in the 21st century. And so he says, I don't want you to be surprised by this. And this is why he says, the Spirit explicitly says. In other words, don't be knocked off kilter when this happens, because the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and to doctrines of demons. Now, there are two words. There's the Spirit. You might want to circle the capital S in your Bible. And then there's deceitful spirits. There's the small s. One is in reference to God, the Holy Spirit. The other is in reference to demonic spirits. And so Paul wants to underscore that false doctrine is not simply traced to false teachers, but to the devil, to demons who work behind false teachers. We think of Satan and his demons as simply enticing us to sin. But never forget that Satan is a liar as well as he is a tempter. He not only deceives into error, he entices to sin. He does both. People sometimes say, how is it that some educated, intelligent person swallows some of the things that they embrace? How do you get tempted to embrace Joel Osteen? Where he, I don't know, he's lost about a third of his congregation, but I think it's still the largest church in America. How do you get someone to embrace Mormonism or prosperity theology? Because they're being deceived by demons. Here's a few headlines, demonic doctrines that are being taught. The Lutheran Church just hosted in, in, in June queer camp. They called it a summer camp for LGBTQ teens. The Cultural Research Center reports now that 43% of millennials don't care or believe that God exists. Why? Because they're listening to doctrines of demons. The church in Sweden has now officially announced this summer that it is, quote, a transgender church. As I told you just recently, a documentary that 
came out in the last two months from the church at Rome, the Pope said, quote, homosexual people have the right to be in a family. They are children of God. What we have to have is a civil union law. That way they are legally covered. Of course, he's not speaking about America because we're way past that, but the other nations of the world. The Methodist Church, quote, headline in August, seeks to ordain drag queen into pastoral ministry. The BBC headline, August, drag queen story hour in America's Bible Belt, specifically Greenville, South Carolina. Last week, Duke Divinity School, my wife and I spent five, hour, five years on the Duke campus trying to win people to Christ, and God blessed in an incredible way. Last week, they packed the chapel. You ever been there? It's huge. They packed the chapel as they offered their first service where they introduced God, quote, as queer, a drag queen, and as a trans man. This is evil beyond evil. These are doctrines of demons. And so these false teachers are successful because they're preaching a different message. They're preaching another gospel. And it may look like their statistics are growing, are glowing and growing, and God is working. And certainly there are good, solid churches that are growing because the truth is being preached. But many of the mega churches in America are preaching another Jesus. They are tickling people's ears. And so Paul reminds us here in verse 3, back in verse 3 of chapter 4, but wanting to have their ears t- tickled, notice they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desire. They, meaning entire congregations, will accumulate, they will multiply themselves, they will heap up is what the Greek word means, teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. Maybe they'll tell people listening, it's okay to fornicate. It's okay to commit adultery. It's okay that your children are gay. It's not okay any more than it's okay for someone to commit adultery or premarital sex. If that's someone's direction in life, they're lost. You're being unloving to such people. So Paul's point here is that they don't first listen to the teachers and then decide whether the teacher or pastor or teaching is truth or not. His point here is they They don't first listen. They first decide the kind of teacher they want, and then they recruit that kind of teacher. They heap up. They multiply. They accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desire. So if they want a golden calf teacher, that's what they look for. And so sadly, the average pulpit today is just a sounding board of what is happening in the nation and in the community. And so the man of God who preaches the word of God and does it seriously, he's rejected. But the guy with his little plumpy 30-minute sermons, itching, tickling, itching ears, he's a celebrity. Timothy, for this reason, I am charging you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus to preach the word. So preach the word because men won't want to hear it. Preach the word because they'll choose bad leaders third preach the word because men will embrace myths. They'll embrace myths. We read now in verse 4, and will turn away their ears from the truth 
and turn aside to myths. Now notice the word ears has been repeated twice in two verses. These people now stop their ears. They basically say, I I don't want to hear this. Most weeks, somebody gets up and leaves, not because there's a, a baby that needs to be attended, but because they didn't like what I said. You see, they, they signed the guest book when they came in, and so I called them. They never made it to the visitor card status, but they made it to the guest book, and they give me an earful. But listen, it's a short step from departing from the truth to embracing myths. You could render this word fables, muthos. We get our word directly from it. And again, this is why it's essential that pastors are qualified. There are too many unqualified pastors in the pulpit who don't teach, or too many pastors who are not convinced that this is one of the primary jobs that God has given them to do during the week. And so we live in a culture that is abounding with myths. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. I don't care if it's the Mormon myth or the evolution myth or the new morality myth or the myth that all the religions and denominations of the world should be united. It's always sourced in something outside of Scripture. So Joseph's myth gets his little revelation, supposedly, in these magic spectacles that he can put on, and he translates a Bible where large sections are plagiarized from the King James Bible, but he makes up all kinds of things, among other things, so that he can baptize his sexual immorality in his book. And so there's a man with 44 wives, and quite often a man's theology is dictated by his morality. Okay, third and finally, the charges manner. We're just about done. Beyond the charges mandate and the charges motivation, there's the charges manner. So we're not preaching a pack of lies. We're not preaching some fairy tale. We are preaching the historical, factual, and authoritative word of God. And so one might conclude, well, that may all be true, Paul, but if this is the reaction, especially at the end of time, maybe we should just be silent. And Paul would say, absolutely not. Look at verse 5. But you... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For the third time in this letter, he uses these two little monosyllables, suder, four letters in Greek, translated here with six in English, but you. For over two decades on my little lamp, I had these two monosyllables stuck on the lamp until the sticky paper ran off. It, it, it lasted for a long time, pseudo, and now I have it in my Greek lexicon. And I often open that lexicon, and there is that little thing, but you, but you. It's emphatic. You could render it you, but you of all people, Timothy, be sober in all things. It doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. It doesn't matter what anyone else is telling you. You, but you are to be different. But you, forget these ear-tickling preachers. But you, forget these who are teaching false doctrine. But you are to preach the word. You are to turn men to the truth. And then he unfolds four ways in which he is to do that. 
First, point A on your outline, we are to be sober in all things. We are to be sober in all things, but you be sober. This is the word that describes the opposite of someone who is drunk. Because people will get intoxicated with false teaching, you need to be sober. Another translation says clear-headed. Another translation says steady. You're to be disciplined in the midst of spiritual drunkenness. You are to be sober as you preach the word. And it's critically important. Preach the word. Be sober with that. In other words, Timothy, you don't need to be novel. You don't need to come up with some new invention to make it palatable. Just preach the word. And these people will come down the pike telling pastors, you need this new gimmick, you need this new method, you need this new form of compromise, but you, in spite of all that is happening, preach the word. Secondly, you are not only to be sober in all things, we are to endure hardship. We're to endure hardship, but you, be sober in all things, endure hardship. Now, remember in chapter 2, the apostle Paul already likened Timothy, among other things, to a soldier. Now, I made a statement 20 years ago. One of my Marines corrected me. He said, we're not soldiers, we're Marines. I get it, all right? But I'm talking in a broad sense now. And I have two sons who are Marines, and I, I, I love the Marine Corps, all right? So with that said, let's say Marine. It's not always easy to be a Marine, is it? You know, your, your bed might be uh, in a cold desert somewhere. It might be in searing heat. Your, your meal might be out of a can. But you are be, be willing to endure hardship. He's just reminding that, that life for Timothy, life for the Christian is not always an easy time. We just had all these missionaries here, and some of them came from some very difficult places. One missionary, I went to his home, and I slept on a dirt floor, and the roof leaked that night. And in the morning, his dear wife brought me this basin like this, and she had retrieved four or five buckets of water, so that's where I could take my bath, so to speak. In the fluffy, soft American church, we don't want to be inconvenienced. But if you take your role seriously, you're going to have opposition Endure sound doctrine, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they'll suffer hardship. They'll be potentially persecuted. And interestingly, in the scripture, very often the people who persecute you the most is the religious crowd. Who do you think's going behind these evangelical preachers who are standing for truth and reporting them to all these different social media? It's liberal preachers who don't like what they are saying. Why? because it bothers their conscience, because they know they're wrong. See, we are to do the work of an evangelist. Be sober in all things. You're to endure hardship, but you are to do the work of an evangelist. He's simply reminding him that at the heart of every ministry should be evangelism. He's not saying that you preach a hellfire brimstone message every week. The saints need to be fed as well. But as a way of life, we should be doing evangelism. Timothy did not have the gift of evangelism, and that's why he's commanded to do the work of an evangelist. And you may not have the gift of evangelism, but you are called to do the work of an evangelist. And if you're not involved in the process of attempting to bring people to Christ, then your heart is out of sync with the living God. 
For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Let it not be said next Sunday that if no one comes through your invitation or my invitation that we didn't try. D, fulfill your ministry. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Again, because people will accumulate in accordance to their own desires, teachers, but you have a different ministry unlike these ear-tickling teachers. You've been charged in the presence of God in Christ Almighty, and so your ministry is to be one that you finish well. Now, your ministry might not be like my ministry. My ministry might not be like yours, but there are some common characteristics that we all share, and in the end, we want to run the race faithful to the end. How are we going to apply this? Let me make three applications as we close. Number one, no matter what the world is like, we are to claim the victory of God. You know, Jesus is in a place called Caesarea Philippi. We've stood there many times with members from the church. Some of you were with me there last May. And and it's a, a place where there's actually a cave where water once ferociously ran through off of Mount Hermon, and, and people would literally take their babies and throw them in the water, and they call that cave the gates of death, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades. And it's in that place that Jesus said, and I say to you that you are Peter, Petros, and upon this Petra, this stone, this bedrock referring to himself, I will build my church, and then he makes this promise. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I was being interviewed this week on a national Christian radio show, and he said, how do you understand this phrase, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it? Understand, Jesus is not saying that the church is defensive. It's saying it's offensive. Gates were used for defensive purposes. So here it's not the gates of the church, but notice the text, it's the gates of hell that will not prevail. Why? Because we're on the offensive. Jesus is not saying that the church is a fortress such that hell can't get in. He is saying that the church is an army that hell can't withstand. That in the end, we are promised victory. And we go with that sense of a victory. We go on the offensive. We go in the midst of wickedness and immorality and paganism. And we believe that God will accomplish his perfect purposes if we are faithful. Secondly, no matter what the world is like, we are to share the gospel. Whatever it's like, we're to share the gospel. Now, in these four commands to Timothy, the commands are different, but they convey the same message. The difficult times that will come at the end of the age and the last days will be hard, but they should spur you on with all the more need to depend on the Spirit of God to minister through you and to you. But the darker the hour, the brighter the light. Let your light shine. We don't despise these. I don't despise our president. I don't hate him. Every time I see him, my heart goes out to him. I'm so sad for him. This man is so lost. He's entrenched in such evil. And he's leading a whole nation into evil. Yes, I don't like what he does. You say you're too political. Someone said 
Last week, you were too political. I'm not being political. I'm just dealing with the moral issues of Holy Scripture. And if you can't hear from the pulpit what the moral issues are, where can you hear it? We're not to despise these people. We are to pray for these people. We are to be faithful to share the gospel with whatever stripe or mark of immorality folks may be in. Third and finally, no matter what the world is like, we need to be ready to meet Christ. He's coming again. The text open that he's the judge of the living and the dead. What will really matter when you come to the end of your life is not your fame or your fortune. Those are all temporal things. I mean, how does God size up a successful life? It's not your fame, it's not your fortune, it's your faithfulness. It's required of a steward that one be found faithful. And if you've never met the Lord, all your service in the world will add up to a big zero. You cannot earn your way to heaven, you need the gift of God, which is eternal life that is humbly received. Now, our Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus came not only to forgive lives, but to change lives. For you promised if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old life has passed away and everything has become new. Help us never to compromise the truth of the gospel. Help us, our Holy Father, to be faithful to the word, to share it in season and out of season. Even this week, we, we pray for a multiplicity of opportunities to reach out to people who might come next Sunday, next Lord's Day. And may you equip even those who already know you how to share the gospel more effectively. We know unless you build the house, we labor in vain that build it. Help us never to be deterred by the foolishness that so many evangelical churches have lowered themselves to. Help us to think with a clear, sober, spiritual mind, allowing the Word of God to regulate the way we think and the way we behave. And we ask it, Lord Jesus, in your holy name, amen.